Welcome back to episode 48 of the Rugby Paper Podcast. Another fascinating week in international rugby as there's another twist in the Eddie Jones tale as he rejoins his native Australia to lead them to the 2023 World Cup. I'm rejoined by Nick Kane and Brendan Gallagher to discuss that and the England squad and sail shark Gus Ward drops in to discuss all things Champions Cup. Right, it's Monday morning. We've woken up to a couple of bits of news on the international landscape. We've got Gus War from Sail Sharks dropping in halfway through the episode. So, so we'll hear about his uh, Champions Cup related thoughts then. But yeah, the international game is full of twists and turns. And the latest in the saga is that guess who's back? Our man Eddie Jones. He's retaken hold of the reins in his native Australia. We kind of expected it post 2023. Brendan, on a scale of 1 to 10, how surprised were you? On a scale of 1 to 10, I wasn't surprised as such because Eddie is a headline writer and I knew something was brewing. I wasn't quite sure what. Uh, there were elements of it that did surprise me. Uh, I'm surprised the RFU didn't have him on some sort of garden lead contract yeah. and they'd left that door open. I suspect that was financial, to be absolutely honest, because... Um, otherwise, they'd have to pay him the full year's contract that was owing. Might be wrong on that, but that's my theory on that. I am surprised in one way in that I've said this before on this uh, podcast. I think Australia are going to be a bloody good team. They came up here with a second team in the autumn and were running on empty after a long season and should have beaten France, could have beaten Ireland, could have beaten, could have won all five matches, actually. I think Dave Rennie was against, in, in very difficult circumstances, was doing a good job. And I think they were going to challenge anyway for the World Cup. So, you know, they were coming in under the radar and now you've got Eddie in charge and they won't be under the radar at all. Having said that, he is a really good basic coach, Eddie, and you often get the impression with him that he's at his best in the first year, 18 months, dynamic period when he takes over with something to prove. Could be a masterstroke, but I think Australia were doing okay anyway. That's my overall take. Nick, I'm, I'm guessing you have some thoughts on that compete clause and by that I mean the fact that Jones can be sacked by the RFU and go to yeah, a competitor, I, not just that, but someone obviously on England's side of the draw as well. I do. I find it um I find it astonishing, really. And um I also I mean I look I in a way, you know, I mean he's he's a free agent, but I, I just find it astonishing that the RFU hasn't protected itself to a degree, um, because he goes in obviously with a an absolutely you couldn't have more of an inside track. He's hugging, he's he's hugging the bloody corner. You know, he knows everything that there is to know about, you know, all of England's key players. I don't know, you know, he probably knows an awful lot about Steve Borthwick and how he 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 will go about things. So in terms of inside information, inside track, it's advantage Australia. They're in the same half of the draw of in, as England. I mean, I've heard rumours, and they're only rumours at the moment, that Jones got a substantial payoff, not a small one. Bill Sweeney has said that, um, you know, Jones got whatever a standard contract payment is. Well, who knows what a standard contract payment is, but the word is is that it was pretty substantial. So the RFU's books, when it comes to, you know, what they've spent on the coaching staff will be pretty carefully analysed. It'll obviously be water under the bridge by that by that stage, but uh, perhaps not if Australia knock England out of the 2023 World Cup. So all these things to, to come round. I mean, I see that Tim Horan, one of Australia's greats, has already called it a risk. 
I know certainly from a lot of, um, you know, just Australian friends of my own, that Jones is not flavour of the month. He may be Hamish McLennan's, who's the Australian CEO, but I think that the, you know, the Australian rugby public as a as a whole will be very much divided on his uh, on his appointment. And as Brandon says, his reputation is is that he makes a hell of a difference at the beginning. But I wonder, I just wonder whether he he you know his experience with England was a tough one for him. His last three years were okay. So they cleaned up in a they they didn't clean up, but they won the the pandemic championship, if you like, which was truncated and they didn't win it in style. And his last two years were were pretty grim. So uh, he's not going into it on a on the crest of a wave, that's for certain. But he's going into it with something to prove and that maybe makes him dangerous. You could very much see him sort of coming into camp and cooking up a storm in the way he did post World Cup. Yeah, I think he's a he's the sort of bloke who's always got something to prove. Um I just think that that's the way he's made. You know, I mean he he'll want to, you know, he'll want to to take Australia, you know, back to the top. He's not won a World Cup and uh that's the biggest not blemish, but that's the biggest sort of miss on his uh, coaching resume so far. So he'll be highly motivated of that. And put it this way, Nick, it, it could work out for 2023. But if it doesn't, I don't think there's any chance of Australia winning 2027. I think five years of Eddie Jones would kill Australia off. It could work. It could work this time around. I still think, as I said, that it, it was going in the right direction for them, strangely enough, under Rennie. But it might yet be a masterstroke. But twelve months would be enough. I'm amazed he's got a five year contract out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah me too. Uh, and 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 I think that Rennie has been hard done to. Mm, I think absolutely that he was. I mean, there were things where I I really disagreed with with what he did. He saw what Skelton could do in the European Cup final, and you, you know somehow they brought him in for a couple of games when they lost by France to by a couple of points and should have beaten them this mm. autumn. Yeah. You know, with Skelton playing, they brought him in another game. They came very, very close again. And I just thought, well, why the, why, why, why isn't this guy embedded already? And you look at a guy like Miafu, it's not Eddie, it's not Eddie Jones's fault, but you look at the number of their players who are now being sort of cherry picked, you know, yeah. you've got, Matt Hansen, Matt Hansen playing for um, for for Ireland and so on and so forth. So, you know they're 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 losing players. You know, mind you, so are England to Scotland. <laughs> do you think that this is an Eddie Jones appointment specifically, or do you think this is a Dave Rennie sacking? I guess the timing is odd in that Pivac and J- Jones were both sacked. You know, two months. I think ago. it's definitely an Eddie Jones appointment. And Nick's absolutely right that there's a quite a large lobby against Eddie, but there's also a large lobby for him and a feeling that you can see a CEO would be thinking, well, I've got a chance to sign him here. Uh, what happens if I don't and we and we don't produce in the next 12 months and Eddie goes to whoever, another side and does well? But it's still a bit odd. <laughs> Nonetheless, it's still a bit odd. I don't think there's any need for such a huge signing. It's a gamble and we'll see how it comes out. Just going back to the five-year contract, do you think this is Jones himself? We know he's a negotiated with that sort of a thing. He was on a lucrative contract with England, the RFU, got a big payout. Do you think he said... The most lucrative of all time. Yeah, well, exactly. Let's, let's not forget, this is the best paid coach in the in the world. 
Exactly. Yeah. But do you think this is him saying, look, I'll come and join you guys yeah. if you give me a Lions series? Yeah. I do. I, I think I think that that's, that is totally it. That's absolutely it. what will have happened. He will. Yeah. Have, yeah, it's too, you know, I mean, it's a it's a great opportunity for um, for him. And um, he'll argue that, you know, he's he's taking a hospital pass for this World Cup. And he'll he needs the four years and the and the Lions tour sort of midway through the next four years to get it all right and um, they've they've bought into it so yeah. we'll see we'll see what happens I think the last uh, Eddie Jones uh, stint lasted was it f- uh, five years Bren well with Australia yeah yeah he it was about another eighteen months after the World Cup wasn't it before it all went pear shaped so he would have been no actually. He wasn't there in 2001, was he? Because Robert Queen was the coach for the Lions. So 2002 through to, to about 2005, I think it was. Yeah. yeah. Wasn't, so it, three, wasn't it? I thought it was 01. Maybe it was end of 01. It was the end of 01 because it was Robert Queen was the, the coach of the team that beat the Lions 2 Yeah. And was he with South Africa for the Lions series or had he left by then? I think no, he was just he, there for the World Cup. He was just there for the World Cup. And, yeah. Um, so he's never, you know, he's never well, had a Lions series of any sort. He's he's it's it's sort of almost become as if he was the key factor in South Africa winning the two thousand and seven. Yeah, he most certainly wasn't. You know, I'm afraid was... that the key factor in it was the bloke who, who was the head coach, which was Jake White, and obviously a, a group of very uh, experienced players and very good players. So, uh, yeah, Eddie was the consultant. I am mystified, by the way, as I thought Australian Rugby Union was meant to be in financial peril. So the next <laughs> five, the five-year contract for Eddie is not going to come cheap. So perhaps there's been slight exaggeration of their financial dire straits. Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, regardless, we've got the potential narrative of a Steve Borthwick, Eddie Jones head-to-heads, you know, a reuniting it, which is good. obviously fantastic. And yeah, should... Scott Robertson come in for Ian Foster, you know, who knows what's going to happen in the next couple of months. Then I feel like the sort of clean sweep is com- is complete of every team that's had its own existential crisis mm. over the last year or two. Well, the international landscape seems to be changing week on week at the moment, and obviously the landscape for the 2023 World Cup as well. But we can't forget that there's a European or semi-European competition going on at the moment. We're just off the back of a Hell of a weekend for European rugby. And it's time for our special guest to join us for today, who is Gus War from Sale. How are you, Gus? Hi, uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm really good. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. You just finished training for today. That's pretty soon after Toulouse. Yeah, uh, we came in. It was only walkthroughs today. Bit of prep for also a bit of review from Toulouse. And then, yeah, just trying to get right for the next weekend. So what's been said in the Toulouse review then? Um, it wasn't the best of us. We could have done a lot of uh, things better Probably move the ball a bit better in attack. They were very good at the breakdown. You have to give them that. But our clearers probably weren't there urgent enough. So, yeah, just needed to focus a bit more on that on attack. Defensively, just the effort and the intent was there. Just by the end, 14 men against probably world-class side. It's hard to keep them out for that long. Early-ish days in your sale career, you went toe-to-toe with the best nine and, for many, the best player in the world at the moment. How was that in the lead-up to it? Uh, yeah, it's pretty exciting, isn't it? He's, as you said, he's probably the best player in the world at the moment. He's in form. Having played them at their place about three weeks ago, we saw how good he was scoring two tries, all the line breaks, how he controlled the game. So to be able to go up against him, yeah, it's pretty special. Yeah, apart from the fact he doesn't, he doesn't offer a lot of chat. That's the only thing. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, but he wasn't, he wasn't responding to it. So I was just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Did you give him any chat? I know he was silent. Uh, 
I was just trying to tell him how good he was. Like he's the best. I was just kept telling him how good he was. <laughs> <laughs> I like that reverse, reverse psychology. Nice. <laughs> Which scrum halves have you played against that have offered a lot of chat? Danny K offered a bit the other week against Quinns. Uh, JVP gives it a little bit. Yeah, they're, they're the ones I can remember most. So yeah, it's pretty pretty good fun. It's better when they give it a bit of chat. Makes it a bit a bit more fun. Who gives better chat out of you and Rafi? Oh, 100% me. 100% me. Yeah. <laughs> you giving him tips? <laughs> yeah, yeah ch- uh, chat tips. Now, I did notice, I mean, the commentators alluded to it, to it as well, that you, you know, for the in the first half especially, were charging around quite a lot. Was the blood pumping that little bit more against us? I'd like to lose Champions Cup, Antoine Dupont. Just that little bit yeah. of extra oomph. Yeah. Uh... I don't know if it was extra oomph or I just found myself in those spaces. Do you know what I mean? I wasn't out there trying to be more physical. If you looked at my shape and the size of me, I'm not I'm not a physical nine. Um, but I was just yes, trying to do all the right things and help the team as much as we could. After the first driving mall try, obviously it seemed to be shaping up quite well. Was there a feeling of, we God, we can win this thing? Yeah, yeah, definitely. We had real clear messages. We felt like we were, we were controlling the first half quite well. Scoreboard didn't probably reflect the pressure we had in the first half. But yeah, it was just as the game went on, we we lost momentum, lost control. They, to be fair, executed a real good game plan on game management. And when Jamine kicks as well as he did for pretty much everywhere on the pitch, yeah. it's pretty hard when he's keeping the uh, scoreboard ticking over. Obviously, there was a red card. Did you feel a little bit aggrieved by that red card as a team? Um, no, I don't think we did. We had a, we came in at half-time. We spoke, don't feel sorry for ourselves. Like, it's been, it's gone, it happens, we're just going to park it, move on and focus on doing our job the best we can. Whatever's next, just keep doing next job, next job, stay in the moment. Um, and to be fair, we've had quite a lot of experience playing with 14 men, so we, we had a pretty good plan on how we were going to go about it. Well, as did many clubs in Europe this this weekend, especially, to be fair. Nick, did you think it was a red? Yes, I did. I think that, um, but I think it's it's increasingly difficult. You know, you it, the ruck's a mess. You've got people uh, who are going into guard positions, basically horizontal to the ground. And although they might not be using their arms to seal off, they're sealing off in every way. But for Visser to have got underneath him, he would have had to have been a mole. You know, it's 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 what's wrong with the ruck. You know, the main principle at the ruck previously, talking about years gone by, was stay on your feet. Got to be on your feet. I'd say that you've got to have your head and shoulders above your knees as well. But the problem with it is, is that you've also got to educate players and that that process is going on at the moment and it's a pretty painful one. And it seems to be taking a long time to get through that if you're in danger of making a headshot, don't make it. We've had this debate a few times about whether, you know, jackling is the problem. And that's kind of exactly it, is how would Visa have got under... Um, I can't remember who the Toulouse player was now, actually. Um, it's not so much jackling, Ollie. It's the fact that the thing is static. You know, there's you you, you get counter ruck sometimes, but it's a pile-up, effectively. You know, what you've got is people in static positions and other people coming into it, joining it, in the hope of making it dynamic in some way. And, it, and the lawyers totally militate against that. Gus, as a nine, what do you make of it all? Obviously, you've got the the front seat for much of it. Yeah, personally, I try and stay away from any jackal positions. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not one for being belted when I've got my head down. Um, it's, it depends how it's officiated. Um, 
like you want to keep the game flowing and you probably say every ruck there could probably be a penalty given. So it's what what we're actually officiating and what's going on in the, the independent rucks. Um, again, I'm not sure how Kobus could have got much lower to clear somebody out at the weekend. But yeah, I think it just depends. And on, as it's got to be on attack and ball carriers. Ball carriers have got to make more of an effort, I think, to get the ball off the chest, get it away from potential jacklers and then win the race. Ball off your chest and win the race. I think it's as simple as that to stop having any dangerous head contacts or making it such a such a mess. I, I think Gus is dead right there because it strikes me now, the way it's repped, once the jackal is in position and got it, you might as well blow the whistle there because and give it to them because you're not going to get them off. The only reason, the only way you can get it off them is by foul play. And that's not, you know, so whatever happens, once the jackal secured the ball, that team is going to have the ball. So the trick is not, it's to win the race, as you say, to get it before it gets into that position. You've got to have maybe a couple of quicker guys in the pack, a couple of guys who, who that is their speciality and, and get them all there. Like hookers are also nowadays, as well as the sevens, really good mobile guys to get to the breakdown first. You might need more players capable of doing that, I think. Maybe. Once but, Jackal's got it, it's over. It's over. Brent, Brent, what a lottery. You know, you look at the Quinns yeah. game, for example, and they had two, you know, would-be Jacklers. This is right at the death. They had two would-be Jacklers over the ball, seemingly in absolutely, you know, technically correct positions and so on and so forth. They get a penalty given against them, and it's the winning kick. And previously, another one was given to Rassing, where Ben Aroos was clearly in at the side. One one of his hands was on the ground, and the other one he was reefing the ball. And again, he gets a penalty. You know, I mean, it's it's so bloody. It's such a mess. It's very inconsistent. Yeah, it is very inconsistent. I'll grant you that. Ninety percent of the time, the refs favour the the jack all the time. But when you get that ref who doesn't, or yeah. isn't just, then it, it blows the game apart. You, yeah. you know what's happening. Yeah, yeah. Do you think it's time for a statement? If we take the visa example specifically, like Gus said, I'm not sure you could get much lower than that. Do you think it's time for a world rugby type statement or just some clarification in terms of in that situation, how you clear someone out with force if a neck roll is no longer allowed and obviously to avoid, you know, any head, shoulder, neck contact? Well, I mean, some clarification would be, you know, would be worthwhile I mean, obviously, the European Cup is where we've seen most of the incidents, but they go on, you know, they're going on continuously in every competition, I'd say. Yeah, you do probably need some clarification on it. But, you know, they'll probably throw the ball back in the player's court and say, you you know, what you have to do is make sure that you're not going to make a headshot and that if in doubt, leave it out. Don't do it. But then you go get to the question of, is this meant to be an area of competition or is it meant to be a, a, a play the ball? You know, it's your ball. It's a free yeah. ball. Oh, there you have it. That's my point. If yeah. it's ref like that, the jackal goes down, that's it. There's no competition with the ball from that moment onwards. So, yeah, clarification, definitely. because it. But it's been a problem. I mean, the thing about it is, Ollie, is that, you know, this is a concentric wheel. You know, we keep on going round and round and round. Yeah, well, exactly. And we keep doing that on this podcast. So for that reason, I'm going to move away from (laughs) (laughs) that topic. Um, I'm going to come to a certain Emmanuel Meafu, who sat down Manu Tuolangi. And I'm just going to ask Gus, has Manu ever been sat down in a sale shirt from what you've seen? Uh, No, I think his reaction was brilliant. He got up and just started laughing to himself. Like Manu, (laughs) but he couldn't hit him. And then just got up and started laughing. (laughs) 
I can think of, and this is maybe a little test for all of you, actually. I can think of one person who successfully bumped Manu in his entire career. I think I've seen Billy Vunapola do it. Would that be the one? Okay, no, not the one I'm thinking of. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. Prime Julian Surveyor, the year Manu actually dismantled the All Blacks in the yeah. second half, he bumped him in the first half, but not to the extent that Meafu did. What occurs to me is he's an Aussie. The French have stolen him, but if the Aussies had Skelton and Miafu as their locking partnership, <laughs> I mean, he's twice the size of Manu. Yeah. I mean, the guy is a man mountain. He'd probably weigh a third, a third as much again as Manu. 145 kgs officially. Yeah. That's yeah. a three. That's a 300 kilo second row. Um, him and Skelton, <laughs> which is just absolutely Ooh. nuts. Gus, did you have to tackle him? Thankfully not, no. If I did, I think it would have been go low and hope. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. well, I did one technique. I'll tell you what, I noticed that your technique was pretty good. You you uh, you managed to lasso uh, Dupont a couple of times, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, that was that was pretty fun, yeah. Almost let him go and then tackle him from the side instead yeah. of trying to get an arm wrestle with him. You can't let him go too far, though, can you? No, he's a bit quicker than he. <laughs> Just on the Dupont thing again, and this is the last time I'll come back to him, but you said yourself that you're not necessarily the the big, burly, powerful nine. I think Dupont probably does have a little bit of that game to him. How did you prep for that duel personally in terms of you know watching out for, well, him trying to run through you as well as around you? Um, it was more just system stuff, stick to what we do around the rook. If he jumps, almost just like take a step towards him, put pressure on him, but don't lunge at him. Make sure he stays a system, stay connected. Then if he does show and go or something like that, then it's an opportunity to light him up. Mm. Right, we'll come to the format of the Champions Cup um, in a little bit. But uh, Gus, if it's okay with you, let's do your random rugby 15 now. Yeah, let's go. Sweet. Uh, nickname? Uh, it's Guzzila or Gusbus. Guzzila? Yeah, it's just, I don't know where it's come from, but in the last year, not not an S, it's a Z as well. Yeah, it's I, just, I can hear uh, <laughs> Sounds like someone just making noises, really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Best rugby memory? Debut for sale at 18, the way it wins. Most embarrassing rugby memory? Um, Scottish School Cup final. We were winning. I asked the referee if it, referee it was final play. He said, yeah, I kicked it out early. There was three seconds left on the clock. They scored from a driving ball. So, yeah. No. <laughs> but you yeah. asked the ref. I know. I, I, I know. I've argued that point as well. Oh, but... my God. <laughs> Oh, the ref really stitched you up there. Did you? Where did you kick it out? On your own five meters? On our own five. Yeah, nice. Nice. Yeah. Really good. <laughs> Pre-game pre tune. Uh, it's Abu or Sam Fender, something chilled. Post-game meal. We had Domino's after the game on Saturday, so that was pretty good. That went down very well. <laughs> I always get Domino's craving after I play. It's not good. <laughs> Best player you've played against? Uh, I'll have to go with DuPont, won't I? Yeah, I was going to say, did he live up to... Yeah, the sort of yeah. it's it's folklore by this point in a way, but he did. Yeah, best player you've played with probably Manny Will Curry. Favorite player right now? I was joking. I got when you sent them through early. Uh, Will Cliff, hundred percent Will Cliff. <laughs> Rugby <laughs> idol, uh, Wilkinson. Favorite stadium? Uh, I don't know what it's called, but La Rochelle away. That's a pretty special atmosphere to play there. Guys, what's it called? Oh, it's after some war hero, isn't it? It always is down there. But yeah, it's isn't fantastic. It, place. Isn't it Marcel de Flandre? Is it something like that? Uh, yes, it's exactly that. Wow, one nil, Nick Kane. Very good. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're looking down. Have you got it scribbled down on your piece? Yeah, of paper? I've got yeah. the old um, Heineken cup handbook just, <laughs> just by me. <laughs> oh, I'm not accepting that. Then that's me. <laughs> <laughs> 
Favorite gym exercise? Um, mobility. Really? Okay, mobility. interesting. We haven't had anyone say mobility. Favorite mobility exercise then, because that's quite like a broad. Um, the old old fashioned hip flexor, hip flexor stretch. Yeah, just one knee and thrust. Yeah. <laughs> Occupation if rugby didn't exist. The boys were joking around saying I'd be a teacher, so I'll listen listen to what they're saying and go with that. What would you teach? History or PE. Superstitions. Don't have any. Don't have any. Rugby law you would change. Something to do around sightings or red or yellow cards, maybe like an orange card, so it's 10 minutes in the bin, and then you can bring a replacement on or like a white card so you can report something in the game that can be looked at later. Okay, interesting. And lastly, best thing about working in rugby? Oh, it's being with the boys, 100%. Being thought, in the, with your mates all the time. Thought you'd say that. Right, that was very quick fire. Nice one. Let's get back to the Champions Cup now. Brendan, I'm actually going to come to you first about this, and I'm just going to introduce the format question and ask what your utopian vision of the Champions Cup would be. Well, I think it was probably the old, the old, you know, pools of four, six matches in the pool. You had the, uh, was it the two, top two went through, didn't it? And then you had the two best third place, yeah. uh, quarterfinal, semifinal, final. It just, now, and there are reasons. It was COVID that, that forced initially this sort of rejig. And it just seems a bit illogical. And you're not quite sure why the teams are where they are, why they're not, they're playing different teams, but they're in the same league. So, you know, it's not like we like. It just seems a bit of a mess. And you've got the round of 16. Funnily enough, I did like it. Was it last year or two years ago? The round of 16 was double-legged. Uh, and that I liked. So, you know, what they had was nigh on perfect, I thought. I don't know why they, they fiddled with it other than the COVID reason. I think they ought to get back to it. Um, but listen, Europe is Europe. There were some good matches this weekend. Not all of them, but there were some good ones. And it will hot up. It will hot up once you get round of 16 quarterfinals. It will be like the Europe. Me and Nick sort of pine for and remember, but it's just a bit of a mess at the moment. This pool stage, Gus. The whole debate from a player welfare perspective is obviously the number of games and the amount of time. And the general view is with this format, the number of games has gone up in less time. You know, with I think three years into this format now, as a player, do you feel that intensity increasing? I know you've not necessarily been in the thick of it, you know, a couple of years ago, but certainly now, does it feel like quite a lot? Um. I'm not sure. I think I've got a whole different view on the player welfare. I think there's a lot being said about it and boys want to play. So, yeah, there's a lot of games going on, but people want to play rugby. Like, it's the best thing to do. It's our job. We love doing it. So I think that's part of it. But um, it is quite intense, yeah. But it's again, it's just like the next level up from the Premiership. So I think that's probably why it's more intense. It's an international competition playing against the best teams in the world. So, as in player welfare, I'm not really sure. I can't really comment because I didn't play before on it. But, yeah, intensity-wise, it's just because the teams are better. Have you spoken to some of the other guys? You know, I I appreciate that you all want to play rugby, but maybe a front rower would think they can only give 60 minutes against Toulouse, you know, once a month or something like that and not be able to, you know, empty the tank in the same way. Have you spoken to guys in camp who maybe do feel that it's a bit much? Um, I think Bevan and Harper felt it on Saturday when they played 80 minutes after the first contact. But I haven't, I haven't really addressed that issue. I don't really get too much involved in it. Just focus on getting fit for the weekend and playing. I don't like the format as it is at the moment at all. I think that um, it's actually become, this was meant to be, it, it was called the Champions League. This is meant to be the top teams in each league. 
it's now gone down to the eighth team in each league. And you can see in the non-competitiveness of some of the fixtures. I mean, I suppose the, you know, the big low light, if you like, was Gloucester taking a second team to Leinster, but also getting absolutely smashed at home uh, this last weekend. It's not as competitive as it ought to be. And I I think that that is, you're just beginning to notice that not all the games are, you know, they're not all full and, um you can't have, you know, cricket scores or basketball scores in a, in, a, in, a, in a Champions Cup. It doesn't sit well. It's not right. The other thing that I think ties into that slightly is it's now possible to make the quarterfinals and potentially semifinals whilst only winning like three group stage games or two group stage games. You look at Montpellier versus Quinns last year. And I want to say Quinns won five and Montpellier won two, but don't put me on the record for that. It was something like that. Yeah. And then obviously Montpellier with a better team across two legs, fine. But it was a Marcus Smith conversion that was pushed to the right that was the difference between Quinns going through and Montpellier not. Who had been the better team over the course of the Champions Cup? It had been Harlequins. Mm. Now, there's some anomalies there. Actually, I might have this wrong, but didn't Sale benefit from that? Was it last season? They... they... Got through on a, on a, a was it one win or two wins? Um, but yeah, and, that, and that that, kind of... that's potentially going to happen this this season as well. You know, I mean, you know, Sale have got a hell of a game. You know, coming up against Ulster. I mean, how do you feel? How how do you feel about that one, Gus? It's a it's a it's a pretty difficult place to go to, Raven, isn't it? Yeah. Um, growing up watching TV, all the Ulster Friday night games was yeah. It looks like a quite an, quite an atmosphere. Um, quite excited to play there, but we're well aware of the challenge. It's basically it's almost a playoff between us and Ulster to see who goes through. Yeah, if you win that, I think you're in good shape. Yeah, it's but it's, yeah. we've we've got to go there and win. We can't go there and hope for a result in any other games. So, yeah, we're well aware of the atmosphere and what's coming, especially with how we went early in the year against them. They're going to be wanting some revenge. So it's going to be yeah. Do you feel that home advantage in the Heineken Cup in particular really counts for? Counts for a hell of a lot. Difficult to go away and win. Yeah, I, I think so. Especially like going to Toulouse, it's a completely different atmosphere to what you, you face in the Premiership. That was an experience in itself. The walk-in, they've got DJs playing, it's a full tunnel, lights everything. And then you get out there and you can barely hear your, your teammates on the pitch. We prepped for it as well. We had speakers all the way through training with right. music playing real loud so we couldn't hear each other whilst we were training in the week to try and prepare for it. But you get over there and it's just a completely different experience again. Are you treating this as a final then, effectively? Uh, I wouldn't say a final. It's more just us focusing on what we do well, being the best of us again, and just preparing that it's going to be a physical, tough game. And we just need to make sure we nail everything we can. And that should hopefully put us in good stead. Before we let you go then, I want a score prediction. Is it, It's Saturday, isn't it, the game? Yes. Could I, I get a score prediction from you, please? Um, it'll be, I think it'll be tight. 19 12 to us okay so comfortable enough not quite a nail biter okay well obviously yeah if you do win like nick said or brendan said i can't remember who you're in a pretty good position to qualify so all the best for that gus and yeah thank you so much for joining us. actually so, before we let, let gus oh, go sorry. can you just tell us i've always been intrigued by the dollar academy connection there gus um i think you've got two scottish finals there didn't you um how did you end up in scotland and are you the same era that was playing against Zach Mercer when he was at Merkiston? Uh No, I'm not. I'm three years younger than Zach Mercer. Oh, right. Zach's a bit older, yeah. Yeah. So it came through, I was doing, my one brother was doing Scottish Exiles. 
because we're we're Scottish qualified through our mum and Dollar wanted to create this scholarship to bring a boy who's not within the Scottish system into the Scottish system who's Scottish qualified from England. Okay. So they got in contact with Don Caskey, the director, would be up there, got in contact with who whoever was running the Scottish Exiles programme. And my brother went up and he loved his two years up there. So, yeah, I pretty much followed. I'm two years below him, so he played nine for two years up there. And then I left. I joined, I joined the year he left. So now I played nine for two years up there. So, yeah, that's how it Who does your brother play for now? Is he a decent player still? Uh, he's all right, yeah. He's stopped playing to to follow an actual career. He was playing um, in the Super 6 for Ayrshire Bulls a couple okay. of years. We won, and before that, I was playing for Air before the Super 6 was founded. So he's played quite a bit of rugby up there. And if your career path continues as it has in certainly the last three or four months, do you hope to have the choice between England or Scotland at some stage? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Probably prefer, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, don't, you don't have to put it on the line. <laughs> Obviously, you, you're yeah, too qualified. I'd, so should you continue, that, that question might be posed at some stage. Yeah, I'd love to if, if it ever came. I'm not going to press you for which you'd pick, but do you have an answer in your head of which you'd pick? Oh, 100%, yeah. Okay, all right. Well... We'll leave that to the imagination then. Gus, good luck against Ulster. Certainly looking forward to it. It should be a cracker of the match. And yeah, it's been great to see you, your career go so well in the past few months. And long long may that continue. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, guys. Cheers, Cheers Maestro. Go well. Bye. Let's get back to international matters now, now that um, Gus is gone. The England squad has been released by Steve Borthwick this morning. <sighs> My feelings, and I said this to you both off air, my feelings were indifference, which I think equates to disappointment. I know we weren't expecting wholesale change, but there are certainly some names, many of whom we mentioned last week when we picked a team for the start of the Six Nations that aren't even in the equation because they didn't make the squad. So I'm going to come to you both. I'll come to Nick first. The biggest surprise, and I think you're looking at the front row probably for yours. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it it looks to me in many, many parts, there are five newcomers overall, but it's Eddie Jones continued in many regards in terms of selection. I cannot see, I mean, what, what, what uh, Steve Borthwick's clearly saying through this Six Nations squad selection is that he believes that it was coaching at the top end that was at fault in terms of England's scrum problems and that they are problems that can be fixed through coaching and are not a problem specifically with the personnel. Now, I I find that quite difficult because of the way that they were overwhelmed during the autumn. And, you know, just looking yesterday, there's a uh, you know, a, a statement in there about these are players that are in form and so on and so forth. Well, if you looked at the racing Harlequins game in Paris, the whole of the Harlequins comeback was predicated on a really outstanding performance at Loosehead by Joe Marler, whose yeah, scrimmage yeah. really provided the platform for them to get back into the game. And He's said, I believe he's said that he's interested in, you know, in playing for England again. I cannot believe that he's out of it. I cannot believe, even though Leinster gave um, Gloucester another dusting, that Rapava Ruskin, who was about the only uh, Gloucester player who put his hand up in that game, is, is, is out of the equation either. 
and that you know Bevan Rod, who's a who's who's a very good footballer. I've got no issues, and he's improving as a scrummager too. But he's a very young guy, and he's got you know he's got ground that he needs to you know get properly prepared before he's ready fully at test level. And you've got a guy like Rapava Ruskin who somehow you know despite having played out of his skin for two seasons doesn't you know doesn't doesn't uh, get a register marla's known as you know he'd be the best scrummaging loose head not just in in the uk or one of the best in europe and definitely in the world so i don't quite understand uh, that i think kyle sinclair is extraordinarily lucky to um, to still be in the squad I think that he, you know, there are certain players who just seem to get, you know, it's almost like there's a monopoly on prop selection for for certain players. And I, I, I feel that, um, you know, that there are, uh, you know, uh, uh, guys who deserve at least to be in the squad and to be pressing their case in the squad. Uh, Dan Cole coming back in, I understand but uh, I, I do think that they're going to need to really find an, another tight head and, and 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 quickly. But we'll see. You know, it, it's interesting because the first three games, England have got quite a – there's a progression if you look in the Six Nations. They've got uh, Scotland first. They've got Italy second. They've got Wales third. Now, ni- n- none of those sides are they, – they're good – but they're not exceptional scrummaging sides. The Italians would probably offer a problem. Scotland might. Wales in a real state of flux. But then they'll come into the last two games against France and Ireland, and those will be massive scrummaging tests for them. So we'll 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 see. It's uh, it it doesn't feel quite right to rain on somebody's parade when they uh, when they come out with the first squad. But I have to say that it was. Uh, it was lacking um, a lot to sort of get you uh, get you excited. Yeah, I don't want to rain on the parade either, but I think we need to make it clear that this is certainly not a revolutionary squad. And no. the headlines say, just looking at the BBC now, Vunapola out, Jack Knoll out, Johnny May out. But actually what they don't sort of zoom in on is, you know, Mako Vunapola is still there, Carl Sinkler's still there, Owen Farrell's still captain, those sorts of things to show yeah. that actually... People have spoken it's about it. It's very conservative. It's very conservative. It's a pretty yeah. conservative. Listen, everybody starts equal at the start of Six Nations. That might be, you know, the, the quality of Borthwick's coaching and his team and getting building momentum. That is what can get England back up uh, quite quickly. It doesn't have to take long. But it is a pretty conservative selection. I quite liked George McGuigan coming in. I've always rated him and wondered why he wasn't mentioned in dispatches. Jack Walker, you know, a couple of Harlequins put their hands up yesterday, in, uh, which I thought was one of the better European matches. It started slowly, but second half, they had that real authentic madcap European Heineken feel to it, that match. I really loved the second half. Marcus Smith had an absolute belting game for a bloke who hadn't played for 10 weeks. And Nick's absolutely right, Joe Marler, when he stops the gab and when he concentrates on rugby, he's a hell of a prop yeah. and a hell of a player. So that was interesting. Um, so, Jack, yeah, I thought Jack Walker played pretty well. I wasn't surprised that he sneaked in. It still worries me a bit in the backs that we, it's this obsession with the all rounders. You know, you've got Elliot Daly, fullback, wing, centre, Tommy Freeman, wing or fullback. 
Dan Kelly, Specialist 12. I'm not quite sure if he's quite ready yet. Obviously, Borthwick will have seen a lot of him, but I'm not sure he's any you know any better than some of the other contenders there. Max Malins, fullback, uh, wing. I've seen somebody even mention he should play 10. Joe Merchant, wing, centre sometimes. Henry Slade, 13-12. Where are the specialists? Where are the absolute specialists that England yeah. build the back division on? He might well have exactly nailed down in his mind where he wants these people to play or on the bench. But at the moment, it's not exactly clear to me. And then you've got, you've got three tens have been named. So is he intending to use Smith in some way? Does he really think he's absolutely ready to come in if there are injuries? Or is he just there as a quasi-apprentice player? Yeah. Which, we hope, we're, which we hope he's not. I did also wonder that, I don't know why, but my gut feeling when I looked at that was actually, is he still thinking of Farrell at 12? And, and Smith at 10, and therefore he wants a, a similar backup to Smith at 10, i.e. Finn Smith. I don't know. It, it, it was a slightly confused there, but he might have the big picture. We, we don't know what's in Steve Borthwick's mind yet. I think he did come out and say that he sees no reason why Smith and Farrell can't work. Uh, Nick so Evans I, said, said oh, that. It was Nick Evans, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, Nick You're Evans right, at right. the weekend. Yeah, which I so thought there, was a little bit of a clue. <laughs> I know. So there's obviously still an openness to it. I mean, I hate it when people say there's no reason why it can't work when it's happened already mm-hmm. and it hasn't worked. Like there are your reasons. Yeah. So that's it's like it's like being caught in a loop. And um, you know, I mean, obviously, if if they do go to that uh, 10-12 combination again, you know, Steve Borthwick and Nick Evans think that they can they can do something that Eddie Jones obviously couldn't. I have to say that whether I mean there's been obviously a huge amount of um of support for George Ford coming back into the side but we're looking at the same in in terms of the key tactical roles on the field we're looking at the same players you know who've been reasonably successful with England but they haven't got it done when it comes to the really big prizes and those players are you know Ben Youngs is still in there Owen Farrell is still in there. I'd I, you know as a as a ten, it may be a different uh, uh, proposition, but as a as a twelve, it hasn't hasn't managed to get it done. George Ford as a 10, 12 with Farrell hasn't managed to get it done. Okay, you know, I mean, I, I can't remember. Did um, who started in the game against New Zealand in the in the uh, semi final? Was it Ford and Farrell? It was both of them. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be the that would be the the, the highlight, along with um, you know going back to the uh, the Six Nations Grand Slam. But you've got you know this these are you know these are moments, but they're not they don't persuade you that all of a sudden it's all going to come together, mm. given the time span that we've got. That it's all going to come together in such a way as 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 England are going to be able to achieve what they haven't achieved so far. One name that I was a little bit surprised to see in there was Elliot Daly. I know he's in fantastic form, but like Brendan said, in terms of the specialist of it, I thought we'd kind of put that to bed. And I'm asking this to both of you as sort of a relative journalistic fetus, but in terms of how coaches operate, will Bolthwick have finalised his squad before the weekend of games? He's had so little time that I suspect he hadn't absolutely nailed it down. So I think there was room for outstanding performances at the weekend and I know what you're going to say now because Elliot Daly was brilliant yeah he was actually brilliant at 13 which is the position he should have been playing in all his England career you know as an 18 year old at Wasps, he was a brilliant outside centre and then he started getting messed around because he can play fullback and he can play wing 
But if you play Elliot Daly at 13, it really changes the shape of what England want to do. You know, then do you have to play Manu at 12? And I don't think Manu's best at 12. I know I did, Nick disagrees with me there. But then if you play him at 12, that then, you know, you do have to have Farrell at 10. And then if you have Farrell at 10, you're not using the Marcus Smith weapon um, as much, perhaps. So it, it, it it's a complicated thing. If you make one selection, it has a knock-on effect everywhere when I, else. When I look, when I look at uh, to Esther Hazen for Harlequins or Manu at his best or any one of, you know, of a number of really strong-running, uh, you know, Dialende for South Africa and so on, the idea of a player who can get you over the gain line early is huge, I think. You know, give you that momentum early on. And England overcomplicate. You know, 12 and 13, look, as long as as they're coming onto the ball in the right way and they're coming on with real venom and pace, that's what, what matters, really. And so Tuilagi at 12 or 13, I don't really care that much, but it just seems to me that there are players that you can't put at 12 <laughs> and a lot of them. So, mm. you know, when you've got a bloke that you can put at 12 and he, he can deliver in that shirt, then, you know, that for me is is probably what you need to do. You know, England have got, you know, now Daly comes into the in, into the equation um, and he and Slade are, you know, they're they're great competition for each other at thirteen, no question. But you know, where's the competition for Manu? He's not playing out of his skin. He's playing better than he was. Didn't make a dent in either matches against Toulouse, which is no, slightly worrying, isn't it? Kelly, Kelly is, you, you know, it's a youngster who looks promising and is coming through, but um, he's still got a, a way to go. So. Yeah, I see Porter's not not in there at all, is he? Cockner Singer's not in there at all. You know, Caden Murley has has probably earned his earned his chance, uh, and maybe Hassel Collins has too. So maybe we'll see a certain amount. There are going to be injuries, and we'll see what happens around those. The McGuigan thing, he's he's played bloody well. I actually really like, and he was a, a, an Eddie Jones pick. I like Blamire. I yeah. think he's a really did nothing good, wrong, did he? Did nothing wrong. Really, really good hooker, and he offers something in terms of athleticism that perhaps uh, Jamie George, McGuigan, and uh, and and Luke Cowan, Dicky don't, because he's very quick around the field. Jack Walker made a fantastic lineout take at the at the back of a um, at the <laughs> at the back of a I, I can't remember what it was it must have been a racing throw uh, but you know I mean I'm not sure that he's done quite enough to 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 get himself into the squad but he's there so look we'll see ribbons is out you know I mean yeah. that was a surprise I thought he'd be in he's out Ezekwe's back in you know so it's the coach's call you know, and really, until the Scotland game, it's um, you know it's impressions, and there isn't the sort of dynamic, you know, dynamism and dynamic about the squad that we, you, you know, that we probably would have liked. But um, it's it's there. And um, yeah, I would just reiterate that um, you know the England side that's so disappointed in the 2015 World Cup, all the same players were reborn months later won a Grand Slam, one in Australia. So it doesn't necessarily have to be the selection of players, new players per se, but I think that could that could help. It's as it's just the whole approach now has to be different. 
It has to be better. It has to be more dynamic. And that has to come from the coaching staff, first of all. And then the key players, the big players, have to buy into that. And that's going to be vital to look to see. And then, you know, if you, if you ever did get to look at their training sessions in the next two weeks uh, and that first match against Scotland, I think we'll be able to see instantly whether there's been a, a sort of, you know, a, a change, a, a sea change. If not, it's the same old players. You know, yeah. the thing that has to change is, is the tempo, the mental approach, the, the you know, the mental dynamic of it. Yeah. I thought it might be quite interesting. We obviously picked our England starting team for Scotland last week, and it would be quite interesting to name the people that were in our starting team that aren't even in the Six Nations squad. Oh, go on, then. This is really embarrassing. Um, yeah, well, obviously, you know, there is no disputing that the Rugby Paper podcast is the hub for all things correct in Rugby Union, and that's the, that's the squad it should have been for <laughs> England-Scotland. Uh, that's what Nick Kane told me anyway. Uh, <laughs> so we had... Rapava Ruskin and or Sean, uh, Nick Shonnet, neither of them made it. Dave Ribbons we had in, he hasn't made it. Anthony Watson made it in, he hasn't made it. His understudy was Joe Thokonasiga. He, he was in. He's it. been declared injured though, hasn't he? I think he would have been in Who after has? injury. Anthony Watson. Oh, has he? Oh, I didn't realize yeah, he, that. He, oh, that's interesting. Injured. Okay, well, I I did think the squad screams of a little bit of Leicester bias, and then Watson was my caveat to that. But maybe the squad does scream of Leicester bias and. The biggest shock for me was Ollie Lawrence, and he yeah. is obviously nowhere to be seen. So oh, if we pick that England team again now, it would obviously be very, very different. So, you know, how's your credibility feeling at right now, lads? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm happy with our team, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <me too. laughs> I'm unmoved. <laughs> and the wonderful thing is we will never be tested, whereas Steve Borthwick's selection will be tested first up against Scotland. So we're it's a win-win for us. Well, that's exactly it. That's the beauty of being an armchair selector. Yeah. I think we'll wrap up there, guys. Obviously, the Champions Cup to look forward to this weekend. So a retrospective thank you again to Gus Wall for joining us and wishing him the best against Ulster. The two headlines from the international perspective, Eddie Jones of the England squad. Tying in with that, just before we finish, if there's an England versus Australia quarterfinal or semifinal tomorrow, Nick and Brendan, who wins it? Oh, tomorrow... England win it just in a year's time, who knows, or in eight months' time, who knows? I'd say tomorrow, based on what we saw in the autumn, I'd say Australia just. Okay, interesting. On a knife edge is essentially what we're saying. And like we say, we can only keep our fingers crossed that that Borthwick Jones narrative does reach a climax come the end of the World Cup at the end of this year. But men, it's been great having you as always, and I will see you both next week. Good stuff. Good stuff, Master. As always, the rugby paper is available in stores on Sundays or get it delivered to you through our digital subscription. Next week, a slight change of pace as we turn our attention to the Rugby Players Association. I'm joined by head of the RPA game line, Luke Chain, as well as former Northampton Saint and current RPA player liaison officer, Christian Day. 